What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. I have ordered House Atreides to occupy Arrakis to mine the spice, thus replacing their enemies, the Harkonnens. House Atreides will not refuse because of the tremendous power they think they will gain. Then, at an appointed time, Baron Harkonnen will return to Arrakis and launch a sneak attack on House Atreides. Now that is how you write exposition. (laughs) I'm confused all over again. David Lynch's 1984 adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune was a legendary failure, both critically and commercially, a film Lynch himself has disowned. But what this show presupposes is, maybe it isn't. You've been watching way too much Tenenbaums. We can't promise to offer a defense of Dune, but we will talk about it as part of our 8 from 84 series. Plus, some good Lynch. We take a look at the movie-length pilot episode of Twin Peaks, which turns 30 this year. That and more. Spice! Ahead on Film Spotting. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to Film Spotting with Josh and Adam. So, Josh, not that I'm opposed to any opportunity to talk about David Lynch and his work, but it's the middle of the fall movie season. Why exactly are we talking about Lynch? (laughs) Well, let's go back to the beginning of the calendar year Uh, in an alternate universe. It feels like now we had we had plans, Adam. We did indeed. We were expecting that we would culminate our 8 from 84 series with Denis Villeneuve's Dune. It was scheduled to hit theaters about a month from now, and we thought we needed the foundation. We had to see the original adaptation from 84, and it seems like we will now have about 11 months to fully prepare for that new version. Since Dune is the consensus worst film in the Lynch filmography, we thought we'd pair it with one of his greatest successes, his landmark 1990 TV series, Twin Peaks, which does celebrate its 30th anniversary this year, a show, Josh, you've never seen. Indeed, so excited to finally scratch this one off the list. But first, let us visit House Atreides to discuss spice production on Arrakis with the Spacing Guild, who... uh, No, forget it. Let's just talk about Dune. You are about to enter a world where the unexpected... Many dangers exist on Arrakis. The unknown and incredible secrets have been kept on this planet. And the unbelievable meat... I see two great houses. Where kingdoms are built, on earth that moves. But we have worm sign the likes of which even God has never seen. And skies are filled with fire. The prophecy which will cleanse the universe and bring us out of darkness. Where a young warrior is called upon to free his people. A world that holds creation's greatest treasure. He who controls the spice, controls the universe. 
Not being too familiar with the details of the drama surrounding the making and release of Dune, David Lynch's failed follow-up to his Best Picture-nominated The Elephant Man, I nevertheless recognize trouble immediately. The movie opens with a Greek chorus-ish direct address to the audience by Virginia Madsen's Princess Arulan, a character, it turns out, who will not play any role of significance in the events that follow. She is, in fact, Princess Exposition. (laughs) She talks of the precious spice, which allows those who possess it to fold space, to travel to any part of the universe without moving, and concludes her table setting, which, make no mistake, was added in post-production, by mentioning that it exists on only one planet, The planet is Arrakis, she informs, also known as Dune. And I couldn't help but think, if the planet is Arrakis, how about we call it Arrakis? Or (laughs) if it's the name of the movie, maybe just Dune. Between processing all the warring houses, Atreides, and Harkonnen, and characters, including Princess Exposition's father, Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV, I know you had that right at the tip of your tongue, Josh, Mm -hmm. and my personal favorite to say, shout out Mapes. Plus, a bevy of other bewildering phrases like Kwisatz Haderach and mm. Gam Jabbar to contend with. Do we really need planet names and aliases? Mm. And yet, overstuffed and mystifying as it often is, Dune isn't that difficult to follow, is it? In addition to its roots in Greek tragedy, this is Shakespeare in space with a heavy dose of hero's journey. More specifically, a messiah story. For those of us seeing Dune for the first time, Think of Paul Atreides, played by Kyle MacLachlan, as Neo in The Matrix, a gifted young man of honor and a capable, inspiring warrior. His enemy, the Harkonnen, they're the agents. The Fremen, those are the free men, just in case you missed it, Josh, who he eventually leads in revolt against the Harkonnen. They're the crew members of the Nebuchadnezzar and the citizens of Zion. Ultimately, the stakes are pretty straightforward. Will Paul complete his mission of self-discovery, harness his true power, and fulfill his destiny as the one. A very delicate time, a beginning is, and fittingly, there are myriad ways we could start our conversation about this adaptation of Frank Herbert's 1965 bestseller. Allies from all over the film spotting galaxy were eager to contribute to the cause. Listeners with boringly unquirky names like Andy, House of Mitchell, from Chicago, a.k.a. Ajax who wondered if Dune is the worst intro for someone who's never seen David Lynch. Lisa and Chris, House of Nelson of Ayer, Massachusetts, a.k.a. Petroni, big fans of Herbert's, quote, complex and imaginative book series, end quote, who were mostly focused on the Atreides battle pug and why Lynch is so determined to consistently show said pug while, quote, cutting several crucial plot clarifying scenes from the theatrical cut, end quote. Battle pug. It's the battle pug? That's great. Yeah. <laughs> and Edwin, House of Arnaden from Asheville, North Carolina, a.k.a. Artano, who left a voicemail revealing to me that for at least 10 years, I've been calling him Edwin Arnoden, with nary a correction, Josh. Edwin dares to defend Dune, calling it a flawed but weird, entertaining, and singular creative vision. Certainly, I'd like to talk about the weird singular director behind it, and whether David Lynch and the material are a total mismatch, or just mostly so. But we're only discussing Lynch's Dune right now, as we said, because we were anticipating the December release of Denis Villeneuve's Dune, starring Timothy Chalamet as Paul. And maybe the best thing I can say about the 84 is that it did legitimately make me more eager to see the new one, if only to find out whether or not another filmmaker could actually pull it off. Glancing at the cast list for the first time, it really was my first look at IMDb. I'm encouraged. 
Along with Chalamet, the impressive roster includes Rebecca Ferguson as Paul's mother, Lady Jessica, Oscar Isaac as his father, Duke Leto, Zendaya as his Fremen love interest, Javier Bardem as one of the Fremen tribe leaders, and Josh Brolin as his trusty Gurney Halleck, along with Dave Bautista, Stellan Skarsgård, Charlotte Rampling. Those performances are in the can, Josh. But with the release being pushed back to October 2021 and the movie's status on IMDb shown as post-production, there's still time for you to inject yourself into the artistic process. Denis Villeneuve, I'm sure, is listening. Box office prospects aside, drawing from your reaction to Lynch's misfire, paint a picture for us of what a successful screen version of Dune looks like. Well, I don't know if I have to paint it. I can show it to you. I think it's Blade Runner 2049. I think Villeneuve has has done this, essentially. Now, I know that was more of a sequel, you would say, and, and this is, from what I understand, a remake. But, um, yeah, Villeneuve, has, he's got the blueprint. Um, now... We could say that um, it's it's a more beloved property, the original Blade Runner, right, than Dune. We've already <laughs> talked about how this movie was initially received. Um, but even so, taking a beloved property, he pulled it off. That was one of my favorite films of that year. I know we differed on it. I forget if you were um, just kind of mixed at him or if you actively didn't like Blade Runner 2049. I was mixed. Okay, you were mixed. mixed. So yeah. I'm stronger on it. But, but I think... It should be even easier for Villeneuve to revisit a title that isn't considered a success and make something of it. And one of the clues is right there on the screen in Dune. I think one of the more successful things in Lynch's version are those scenes on Arrakis where they have that eerie orange glow. The cinematographer on Dune is Freddie Francis. Mm-hmm. That's that's like seems like a template for what Villeneuve did in Blade Runner 2049 for those Las Vegas scenes, True. which mm-hmm. were some of the most arresting for me in the movie. So so I think he's he's got, you know, the path here. The advice I would give, I mean, it's obvious from your setup, right? Uh, dispense with all the lore. Just mm-hmm. get rid of it. I'm I'm almost alarmed. I'm with you. Like I'm more excited about Dune having watched Lynch's version because I see the potential in this material. Um, but man, when I see that cast and hear all those names, I'm kind of like getting a little nervous. Like, why don't you just cut that cast in half and we're already ahead of the game, right? Cut, cut those characters, I should say, in half because that opening narration with Virginia Madsen, I felt like I was getting all nine Star Wars title crawls coming at me at once, just trying to take all that in, right? And and get my bearings. It was outrageous and ridiculous. So the one thing I would do is kind of trim that back a little bit. And instead of worrying about hitting everything that's covered in the novel, how about this? Find an idea that is buried beneath Dune's mythology and, and mm-hmm. ask yourself, okay, what might Dune be about? What it, what might it actually be about? And again, look to Blade Runner 2049, where Villeneuve used that world of replicants and holograms to really explore what is real and what is artificial, especially as we move into an era of artificial intelligence. Um, you know, a, not a the most unique sci-fi question, but a rich one. And he went on to explore that with 2049 in a way I think was rewarding. Now, I don't know what the idea could be from Dune. I haven't read the book. The movie is so convoluted that I don't know where you would start, but, um, you know, maybe something about resources and conservation, given that it is a desert planet. Mm-hmm. Surely there's something there. Villeneuve has the style to make Dune interesting. He's just going to need that idea as well, because I don't know 
if there's anything, if there's any idea in Lynch's Dune beyond hitting all this lore, packing it all in, and then a few Lynchian touches, which I do want to talk about because I think they're there and clearly the most interesting parts of this Dune. Yeah, I think you are definitely onto something there. And I think that will be so key is figuring out what that idea is and us as viewers tapping into whatever it is that made Denis Villeneuve want to tell this story right now in whatever way he chooses to approach it. Because even if they do just reduce it to this hero's journey, that will be an improvement. I'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. You already kind of touched on it. But if that's all there is to it, Josh, then I'm not sure that's really going to be enough to sell me. I think we had very similar reactions to this film. I will give it this credit. I've always said here on the show and always meant it that I don't believe in guilty pleasures. I don't believe in the idea of movies that are, you know, quote unquote, so bad they're good. But I will say for Dune that it challenged that philosophy more than any movie I've seen in recent memory. It is just so bizarre and so twisted and perplexing at times, and everyone is leaning so hard into it, playing it for the most part completely straight and serious, that I do really appreciate its kooky ambition and its conviction in that Mystery Science Theater 3000 way where you can watch something mockingly but simultaneously adoringly. I almost got there. Yeah. Almost got there with Dune. Well, and th- and that's camp, right? That That's genuine, that authentic camp. And I think this movie does have that quality. I think, you know, probably 10 to 15 minutes in, if you're going to stick with it at all, you just have to, you know, not that everyone's literally doing this, but put the notepad away of character names and terms and give up on this being some sort of genuinely enthralling sci-fi movie and enjoying it as a piece of camp. Um, and I think the performances are definitely a part of that. Um, and then, you know, this may be connected to Lynch too. When we talk about Twin Peaks, I want to talk about sort of the the um, the style of performance that he encourages, which is it's it's sort of adjacent to camp. I don't think that's I don't think mm-hmm. Lynch wants us to laugh at his character at the performances in something like Twin Peaks, but it's on the edge of that. Here in yeah. Dune, the performances go over that edge. And I, and I think that's what <laughs> Honestly, that's what saves a lot of it. I, if you and it's interesting that McLaughlin is in both properties, right? Because I think he's brutal in Dune, just so incredibly boring. Um, and all these other performances going on around him are so much more interesting because they're doing exactly what you're talking about from staying prancing around, you know, in this space speedo, essentially. And he is totally leaning in or Kenneth McMillan as the Baron. He wears a levitation yeah. suit floating in the air, spewing out these commands, just going like 500 percent. Those are the enjoyable performances and McLaughlin is just, you know, so blank. He's blank at the beginning when he's this, you know, this prince. And then he's he's blank later when he's supposed to become this military leader. The performance hardly changes at all. So I think that's an area where the camp doesn't work. And and otherwise there are plenty of camp elements that do. I you know, I think Lynch is interesting. You asked the question, Adam, about, you know, was he just mismatched for this material um, or, or what drew him to it? And I do think you can see some of the elements where you understand what might have drawn him to it. And it's it's a lot of the imagery. Um, and I get like that one sequence early on where – now, I'm going to forget. I think it's a Spacing Guild member 
comes to meet the emperor and this huge glass case is brought in by servants into the emperor's throne room. The the case fills with fog and steam. Mm -hmm. And then from it emerges this creature that looks like a giant brain. It has eyes, tiny hands, a mouth, and they have a conversation. And I'm thinking at this point, oh, this thing is straight out of a racer head, you know, this image. Mm -hmm. And I I thought it was actually really cool. It's, It's a practical effect. It really registers. It's world building in a way that that's just compelling. And so you see what what drew Lynch to it. But I think at the end of the day, this novel just proves to be too literal for a mind like Lynch's. If you think about Lynch, he's he's at his most adept navigating dreams or mysteries or visions. And so in the best Lynch movie, exposition doesn't really matter. It's the framework. It's the skeleton that hangs. That's what our experience hangs on, but it's not necessary. In this version of Dune, exposition is the only thing that matters. Um, Despite those visual flourishes, it's ultimately about telling this complicated, convoluted story. And I think that is what trips Lynch up. So there's a lot to get to there, Josh, including McLaughlin, who Maybe I give a pass to here. He's exquisite in Twin Peaks, as we will talk about. And of course, we will note that that is six years later when that is being released. So entirely possible he has just grown in that time as an actor. But the material is so much better and so much richer. And there's so much less absurdity going on around him that it's easier for me to appreciate that performance versus really judging him here. But I get it. I get the idea that as Paul, he is pretty bland. There is still an earnestness to it, which we also see in Dale Cooper that I appreciate. But I do want to reinforce what you were saying in terms of that initial question about what we hope to see from a Villeneuve version. And it's funny because I mentioned Lisa Nelson writing in and her kind of quick summation of the Lynch version was that it's laughably campy, disturbingly gross, and extremely muddled with each passing moment. And look, simply having better effects, which this version, the 2021 version, almost certainly will have, will help solve the camp issue to an extent, Mm -hmm. along with dialing back some of those performances. And you kind of stole my thunder. You already mentioned Sting. Lisa and Chris were obsessed with the battle pug. I looked back at my notes and I'm like, this guy barely played a role in this movie. And yet all my notes are just filled with sting comments. You know, like he's he is clearly supposed to be a hot spur like rival to Paul's Prince Hal. But he absolutely does nothing until all of a sudden at the end, he's there for a showdown. Again, sort of classic Shakespeare that we're going to get a sword fight at the end between these two rivals. But we don't feel it at all on any level. Terrible fight. I've got I've got notes down like Sting's crazy eyes, LOL. <laughs> Sting is unhinged and Sting in a codpiece. Why? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's that's the experience you're going to have with Dune. But both the, the gross out factor that Lisa mentioned and how muddled it gets, I do think relate to what we were saying about just kind of fundamental storytelling. You said dispense with the lore. Just don't get lost in the sci-fi-ness of it all. The names, the trinkets, the fluids, the weird body parts and the creatures, the sum of all those elements doesn't equal world building. It certainly shouldn't, and it doesn't here. It's, right. it's how those elements support and inform character and action. And when Dune is best, and I agree there are some really striking visuals here, but it's when we actually feel the connections between the characters and understand them, between Paul and his mother and his father. I'm thinking of Jurgen Prochnow in that role and 
it's because we we actually see it. <laughs> we recognize it. It's not just what we're being told or how an inner monologue expresses it or a bit of narration, but characters actually demonstrate it with what they do. And I think any time that narration or some kind of montage is covering ground that otherwise should be conveyed dramatically, you've really got an issue. And I think for me, a key part of that would be the Chani character, his love interest played by Sean Young, oh, man. where we are just constantly told that they have this deep abiding passion for each other. And yes, we do see them make out a little bit, but we otherwise don't get any sense of who they are together as individuals, who they are as a couple, what really does draw them to each other beyond, of course, he's this leader and she's attractive, apparently. I think he even does note that. So there are just things like that that are missing here that I'm really hoping that the Villeneuve version gets right. Now, you also mentioned how this movie is or isn't Lynchian. And you do look at it being the last Lynch movie I need to see, right? Which is maybe odd because it's one of his earlier films, but I've always skipped it. That's why I was so excited to include it in this 8 from 84 series. I am now finally a David Lynch completist. And you see some of those familiar faces in the cast, right? You see Kyle MacLachlan, you see Jack Nance, mm -hmm. of course, showing up. Doesn't have much of a role either. Dean Stockwell, Everett McGill, who we're going to see in Twin Peaks. Freddie Jones from The Elephant Man is in this one as well. And then you mentioned Freddie Francis, who also shot the Elephant Man. It is a David Lynch script. So what is it about the material? I mean, I read a little bit of the backstory about how it got presented to him. And a friend of his said, oh, yeah, it's a really great property. You should do it. And he's like, OK, like he didn't he didn't maybe put a whole lot of thought into it, or at least that's the the myth that he is trying to propagate. But as I watched it, I did latch on to a couple of things. And it's in what you were saying about the dreamlike quality of so much of Lynch's work and why Dune really doesn't work because you're absolutely correct. It's so literal. But I will say first that Paul's character in a way is kind of like Agent Cooper and kind of like the character Jeffrey Beaumont he plays in Blue Velvet too in that he's kind of a detective. He He's not looking for information really about the world around him or trying to make sense of things that he absolutely doesn't understand externally. It's more internal, right? Like he, he's kind of seen this prophecy. The, the spice has given him this vision. He knows this path apparently that he should be on, as I said, of self-discovery, but it's like he's picking up clues along the way. There is that, that mystery element to his journey here, but also it's that he is truly a dreamer. He's someone who is dreaming awake for a good chunk of this film when he when he puts together that clue that he is Paul Muabdib when he's he's given that yeah, name you left that he, name out oh I oh I love it right <laughs> I had to get it in here when he is finally granted that name he knew it because he had already seen it somehow in some kind of vision right and he says a dream unfolds and then the through line of what his father says to him is this idea that a sleeper must awaken. I mean, that's that's pure Lynch, this yeah. idea that you've got these kind of experiences, these emotions inside of you. They're dark. They're they're weird. You can't quite make sense of it. Even think about characters in Lost Highway or Inland Empire who seem like they're in a perpetual state of nightmare. Mulholland Drive is definitely one of those as well. And some of these characters who kind of have this misty eyed naivete around them and just generally 
being in different states of consciousness. That's what a David Lynch movie feels like. Like we as viewers are going in and out of those states with the characters. There are hints of it here that at least suggest to me maybe that's what Lynch saw in the material, but it is so smothered by the lore and by all those details and the exposition, as we said, that it never really gets to come out. The hints, I think, too, are in the technique he uses where we hear not just Paul's thoughts on yeah. the soundtrack, but other characters, too. But I think it, it is – I don't know that it's always effective. It's In some places, it's no, just it's more not. exposition. But I do think, Adam, it's related in Paul's case to what you're talking about. It's almost mm-hmm. like he's, he's dreaming while he's yes. awake and hearing those thoughts allow us access to it. So even though it doesn't quite work, I do think it's tied to that Lynchian quality you're talking about. You knew the spice would change me. But thanks to your teachings, it's changing my consciousness. I see it. I can see it. Is he the one? You carry my unborn sister in your womb. He knows. Now, what else struck you as actually fun about the movie. I mean, maybe we're going to get into the campy elements here, too. There's something very Flash Gordon-esque with the rock and roll. I think Toto doing some of the score work here. I wish I could say the score (laughs) was a positive for me. (laughs) But I love those weirding tools or whatever they call them. The, I mean, Josh, the battle is played out with mind guns. Um, I think you're correct. I think, well, and it was something about... um, a noise too, right? It was like That's amplifying. Right. You have to yeah. say it. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not going to put that in the plus category. Um, I can say, let's go back to the special effects you you noted and mm-hmm. the non-practical ones. I do think it's not just that they're quote unquote dated, which is not always the best term to use. Um, it, they're not even up to par with a lot of what we were seeing in films this big at the time. I mean, even something like, you know, aside from the Star Wars films, but like Tron even, you know, is trying different things with early CGI even, I believe. And I'm not sure if that's exactly what we get here, but what we get to it that is akin to today's CGI is just brutal. And I got to say, Adam, the one thing I was really looking forward to about this Dune the worms, the giant worms. I mm-hmm. thought, okay, you know, it, that just sounds awesome. I want all in on that. Uh, there's a variation of it in The Mandalorian recently. Got me excited again about the desert worms. I think they're terrible. I mean, they never seem to occupy the same physical space as the actors. No. And if there is, if there is a Dune moment for me, it's Paul riding on top of the giant <laughs> worm, having yeah. like lasso slash harnessed it um you know that is kind of like if you're gonna love this movie you've got to love that moment genuinely authentically and not laugh at it and i (laughs) i just couldn't do it but all that to say again those the practical effects i think really work when there are creature designs and the production design i think the production design is really solid here um and expansive i mean it doesn't look cheap Mm -hmm. these sets and we visit as you've noted multiple planets different throne rooms we get a sense of what each place is like and how it does reflect the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would put the production design in the plus column as well. Uh, again, along with the cinematography and and some of those creature effects, I, that's probably about all I've got, though. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think that some of the production design 
some of the planets and the sets are better than others. Of course, there are times where I felt like I was flashing back to my days loving the black hole as a kid, you know, where it is, it is, it is pretty flimsy in some instances, but then in others, you look at, for example, that major scene at the beginning in the emperor's lair. Anytime we're in that space, I feel like so much care and attention was put into making that design really work. And that does bring me to one other element I do genuinely love about the film. Unfortunately, it's all of about three minutes long. And I'll just be honest, I can't articulate why I love it. But Alicia Witt as Aaliyah in that scene, when as Paul's witch sister with powers like Wait, you're, you're, communicates you're, you're missing a crucial element she's about okay, three or four. she's about three she's, or four yeah <laughs> okay. she is and and she she speaks in a very odd way yes and and then she's using the voice too the voice that we talk about where it's like a growl that can can command others to do your will and when she's holding the baron in that space there is something so wonderfully creepy mm-hmm. about every part of that a messenger from Moadib, poor emperor. I'm afraid my brother won't be very pleased with you. Silence! Kill this child. She's an abomination. Kill her. Get out of my mind! Not until you tell them both who I really am. It's a small part of the movie, unfortunately. <laughs> it is a small part. But I think that's also a Lynchian part. You know, you're, you're not, it's unexpected. You're not entirely sure what's going on, um, yet you're still caught up in the moment. Can I ask you um, a question that I think I may have missed this? I, I wasn't really <laughs> up for rewinding it because it was about halfway through the movie and I had to make it through the whole thing. Okay. That, that creature I talked about in the glass case, mm-hmm. later on during the space folding sequence, I think right. it is. That, yes. that creature, from what I understand, is crucial. This is all taking place in really terrible special effects. Crucial to the space folding. Does this brain blob thing essentially poop out a black hole <laughs> they travel through? Did I get that right? I don't know what to do with that, Josh. I was so utterly confused during that entire sequence. I think I saw the same thing you did, and I'm trying to forget it. Okay. All right. Well, we'll we'll always have to wonder. Um, a more serious question that maybe we can wrap it up here, but this sort of mythology thing, if it works better in Star Wars, because Star Wars is full of lore, right? And we can argue about how much it works. I think because it's spread out over nine plus films, even three for the first three, right? That helps. But let me ask you about Miyazaki. Having watched all of Miyazaki's films recently, um, I am wondering why does the lore that's in a lot of those movies work better there, or does it maybe not work so much? And is is that something we might say is a Miyazaki weakness when when his films indulge too much in the mythology? I think of one, you know, I still like it, but I think of Howl's Moving Castle particularly mm-hmm. as being a little burdened by that, even though the central imagery of the the castle is so astounding. Yeah. Um, but yeah, do you, do you have any sort of theory as to like, this isn't the only film to have this much mythology, you know, um, but it seems like it suffers from it more than anything else I've seen. It does. And I really wish I had a good answer because that's kind of what I was getting at in the intro in that if you really break down Dune and give it any thought, you realize that you always kind of know what's going on. It's never really a case where you don't understand what the main motivation of the protagonist is and who his enemies are. And 
you know, as I said, what the stakes are. I think that is always clear. And yet scene to scene, it's as if maybe they're just constantly getting sidetracked mm. by all the things that really shouldn't matter. And so you're you're then paying attention to these things and going, oh, this must be really important. And then you realize a scene or two later or many scenes later, no, it actually wasn't important at all. There's, yeah. just, there's something fundamentally broken in the storytelling here. And maybe that's a little abstract and unwieldy. But I don't, of course, think about some of the Miyazaki films that way. And part of it might be that we're often seeing those worlds from the perspective of these protagonists who are often children, right? Mm. So there's kind of this imagination to it where we can get lost in it a little bit. Whereas this one, even from the beginning, they give you that monologue so they can try to ground you and say, hey, settle in. We think you can follow this. Yeah. <laughs> We're just going to lay it all out for you and you'll be fine. And then instantly you realize, no, <laughs> I don't really care. I don't really care about right. all these details at all. So I don't know if that answers it at all, Josh, but that is for me the mystery of Dune, as I suggested. Why is it that you can see where it's going so clearly and yet you feel moment to moment you are just constantly lost? Yeah, I, no, I think you're onto something with Miyazaki there. There's a coherence to the overall vision, um, mm -hmm. to, uh, which is closely tied to the aesthetic style. Um, animation, of course, too, that I think works in its favor that just isn't operating here in Doom. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, we're going to wrap it up, even though I only said Kwisatz Haderach once, Josh, <laughs> now twice. I, I got it in if you have seen Dune and agree or disagree with our takes, maybe have a better answer to Josh's question, please email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. So there's less spice in Lynch's Twin Peaks, but a lot more to talk about. We're going to dive into the feature-length pilot episode next, and we'll share the new film spotting poll question about 1980s directing debuts. Stay with us. Stop bugging me, will you? You know, this is where we eat in America. Hmm? I got my meat, I got my potatoes, I got my vegetables, I got my dessert, and I don't even have to wash the dishes. That was John Lurie and Esther Belint sharing a TV dinner, minus the TV, in 1984's Stranger Than Paradise, director Jim Jarmusch's second feature, and one of the landmark 80s independent films. As we're getting here finally to the end of the year, Josh, and we've got a lot of films to fit in before we share our top 10 movies of the year in mid-December. We are trying to wrap up this 8 from 84 series. We're going to get to the final installment, this Jim Jarmusch film, one 
that I have seen, but almost consider a blind spot because I think it's been approximately 22 years since I've seen it, Josh, if my math is right. And while I appreciated it, I definitely was not really on that Jarmish wavelength quite yet as I've come to be with some of his other films. Is this a blind spot for you? I've seen it probably not that long ago, but like you, I probably did not appreciate it enough. I, I, I've written about it, you know, positively, but not glowingly. So yeah, I'm looking forward to taking another look. And possibly next week, we may push it back, but at some point we're going to do our top five 80s directors. And that title may be a little bit misleading because we aren't talking about the biggest or even the best directors of the 80s, the people who made the most good films. But we are talking about people like Jarmish who made their debut feature in the 80s and then went on to greater success. Yeah. So you might think of Spielberg, James Cameron, maybe even Oliver Stone um, as 80s directors, but they all made their debuts in the 70s. So we wouldn't consider them for something like this. We'd be thinking of directors like Steven Soderbergh, Spike Lee, Coen Brothers. They debuted in the 80s. So yeah, we'll, we'll be ranking. I think we're going to do a ranking probably mm-hmm. um, when we get to this of those 80s directors. And I'm not even clear on this point. So maybe you can help me, Adam. We're going to be ranking the directors themselves based on these debuts or these films as debuts? Neither. Okay. I'm not sure it's either of those. I'm glad I didn't start my list. (laughs) Well, maybe more the former than the latter in that we are ranking the directors. It's not about the debut films. The debut films are just a foundation. Got it. Whether or not you've even seen them doesn't necessarily really matter, though it can factor into your ranking if you choose to make it part of the criteria. But overall, you're looking at filmmakers who had their debut in the 80s, and then you're looking at the expanse of their filmography and ranking Really, whose filmographies matter to you the most? Okay, got it. Okay, now having said all that, our latest poll question is more like the alternative. You mentioned, Josh, we actually do want to know who made the best 80s directing debut. So we're focused on the film. And of course, there are so many options we could include. We had to narrow it down to maybe about eight here to make it really a viable poll question. And you may disagree with some of the choices, but... That's part of the fun. And in fact, we know you will because it otherwise wouldn't be a trademark, deeply flawed film spotting poll question. Josh, their options are. First one, Jim Henson. He made his debut in 1981 with The Great Muppet Caper. Michael Mann is another option for Thief, also from 81. Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead is another 1981 debut. Then we had Amy Heckerling in 1982 with Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Rob Reiner had 84's This Is Spinal Tap. The Coen Brothers' Blood Simple, the date on this one, we always have to remember. I it's think in 85. It played, yes, in 84 somewhere, but we it's considered by Film Spot in an 85 film. Either way, they're in this poll as an option. Spike Lee, 1986's She's Gotta Have It was his debut. And then at the end of the decade, we got Steven Soderbergh's 1989 Palme d'Or winning Sex Lies and Videotape. You could, of course, vote other and write in your favorite. And that favorite might be, I don't know, Robert Redford's Best Picture winning Ordinary People, Cameron Crowe's Say Anything, my beloved Kenneth Branagh's Henry V, Wong Kar Wai in there, Josh, making As Tears Go By, David Mamet's House of Games, John Sayles' Return of the Seacaucus 7. It's going to be a difficult ranking. It's going to be a difficult poll question. I am intrigued to see the results. And currently in the lead, maybe no surprise here on Film Spotting, the Coen Brothers and Blood Simple are just beating out 
Rob Reiner's This Is Spinal Tap. Other is near the bottom. So maybe, Josh, we avoided making any huge mistakes with the candidates, but there is time and I'm sure more will be revealed. A bit of a surprise, perhaps. Though maybe nobody in Film Spotting Nation appreciates Steven Soderbergh quite as much as I appreciate Steven Soderbergh. Sex, Lies, and Videotape also polling near the bottom. Yeah, I feel like that's one that, you know, people are clearly aware of and remember as this kind of Sundance shocker, but doesn't get talked about a lot anymore as the in a, as a film itself, you know, um, it's more like what it meant for Soderbergh than the content of the film. It's been so long since I've seen it. So mm-hmm. I, I'm not even sure. That's probably why I wouldn't vote for it in this poll, at least. OK, so what movie would you vote for? Well, I, I have a feeling if I watched Blood Simple again, because it's been a while, um, mm-hmm. that I would probably join the masses and and vote for that. But not having done that and looking at this list... I'm going to go with She's Got to Have It, Lee. I I know there are flaws there, but it's still one of his that I really do like. Yeah, I do as well. It's a tough choice, and this is probably the boring route to go. But the reality for me is almost any poll question or any kind of competition that includes this is Spinal Tap. I don't care what the topic is. That's the movie I'm going to pick. And this is going to come up again when we get to our 8 from 84 awards. Rob Reiner is not going to crack my top 10 of 80s directors, but that movie is probably my number one. You can vote now and leave a comment over at filmspotting.net, and we will get to those results here in a couple of weeks. On next week's show, we're also going to play Massacre Theater, where we perform a scene from a movie, and you get a chance at winning a Film Spotting t-shirt. In case you missed it, here's a bit of last week's Massacre. Why shouldn't we look at ourselves up there? Who cares about the fifth Earl of Bastrop and Lady Higginbottom and and who killed Nigel Grinch Gibbons? I can feel my butt getting sore already. All right. Uh, another clue here, maybe uh, the those involved in the making of that film just got a lot of coverage in our recent yes. poll conversation. Yeah. So if you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, November 16th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on next week's show. A couple of podcast plugs here. We always like to highlight what's going on at our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, Burning Down the House, Part 2. Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky talk about David Byrne's American Utopia. Here's a spoiler. They all loved it, as they should. And they've paired that with David Byrne's 80s directing debut, True Stories, which I have not seen. So I've been holding off on these episodes. But as a big David Byrne and Talking Heads fan, I am eager to listen. New episodes of The Next Picture Show are available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find more info at nextpictureshow.net. We also wanted to mention a new podcast from someone who is near and dear to the show. If you have ever been to one of our film spotting live events in Chicago, and maybe even if you've just heard those episodes, you are familiar with the name Tyler Green. He is our live show producer and a longtime friend, and he's got a brand new podcast out called This Is My Family. It's a show about building a life with the people we love. Tyler's a gay dad in an interracial marriage, and his conversations each week are going to explore 
heartfelt stories, funny stories about how you can make a family and how your family ultimately makes you. So Tyler invites you to join him for a celebration of the beautifully messy connections that shape our lives. And as I said, longtime friend of the show, a collaborator here of ours, and I can't wait to listen to This Is My Family, which you can hear wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find more information at timfshow.com. They're also using that handle, T-I-M-F show, on all the major social media channels. So best of luck and congratulations to Tyler on the show. Yeah, congrats, Tyler. Man, I miss I miss talking to him. He moved away from Chicago not too long ago, and I know a pandemic, it wouldn't have mattered, not like we could hang out, but a great guy, and I'm sure this will be a fascinating show. I'll get, I'll get his voice in my head by listening to This Is My Family. That's what I'll have to do. Yeah, and listeners who haven't had the chance to meet Tyler or hear from him when he's introducing us, maybe at one of our live shows, he was, of course, going to produce, even though we moved, he was going to produce our 15th anniversary live show tour. Our show's in LA, New York, and in Austin. He was going to be on site for all those, and we don't know when those shows are finally going to happen, but we're confident they're going to happen at some point. They better, Josh, and Tyler will be there for them. Yeah, he always does. Our, he warms up the audience for these shows, and so not only the logistics that he manages, but he's great behind the mic, so I'm sure, I'm sure this podcast will be a good one. Again, best of luck to Tyler. That's T-I-M-F show. Dot com. One way you can support us here on Film Spotting is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon for a mere five bucks a month. Or if you donate one time a single annual donation, you actually get a discount and get a month free. You get ad free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed. You get live show pre-sales and discounts when those happen again. And maybe the best part, you get monthly bonus episodes coming soon here in November. We're going to get to the top five turkeys we love. Dune maybe could have made the list, Josh. Mm, alas, that, alas. Wouldn't that have been nice to be able to it slot would have been. that right in? How's your list coming, by the way? I, I know you were uh, struggling at first. I'm still struggling, mm-hmm. though as I looked at a lot of the movies that have been given historically low ratings, on Metacritic and Rotten Tomatoes. It's basically every movie from the 80s I absolutely adored. Your, so, your, your formative years were yes, all, were all yes. turkeys. <laughs> I don't know what that ultimately says about me here on the show, but we also give you the opportunity to participate in exclusive events. When we get to 1,000 patrons, we're going to have another virtual watch. We'll watch a movie and talk about it live with our family members, and we're doing monthly trivia, trivia spotting for The Voyage Home. By the time most people hear this show, that will have probably already happened, taking place Friday night, November 13th, and I'm excited about the guest list. We always have 10 teams made up of listeners randomly assigned. There's always a captain who is a film spotting VIP. Now, we use that term loosely, Josh, because that VIP might be you or me, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. But we do have some special guests, some actual VIPs, and we've got a good group. We've got five guests who have done it before. And we've got one who's brand new that I think listeners will be really excited about. A voice they have heard on the show before, but also a voice I'm going to say a good chunk of our listeners here now every week and maybe even more often on another major podcast. Intriguing. Can I just say that I really need trivia spotting this time. I mean, all of these have been fun, but it's been, it's been a rough, we we could say 10 days or so. And 
the thought of just like signing on with a bunch of film spotting listeners to only think about random movie questions for an hour or two. It's that's what I need. I can't wait. You forgot the part about with a cocktail. Uh, this is true. Yes. Many, <laughs> many of the participants do choose to imbibe. Yes. And many of those hosts and guests. That's patreon.com slash film spotting to sign up and partake in all the fun. Now we've got some Twin Peaks talk ahead, but we do want to get to the results of our most recent poll question. We asked you which of these failures, here you go, David Lynch and Dune, do you champion? We're looking here at other high profile auteur directors who took on an existing property and they failed. Didn't go well, critically or commercially. The options we gave you were Brian De Palma's Bonfire of the Vanities, David Lynch's Dune, Steven Spielberg's Hook, Ang Lee's Hulk, Andrew Stanton's John Carter, Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes, The Wachowski's Speed Racer, or nope, you know what? Every single one of those movies you mentioned is bad. Josh, how did it come out? In last place is De Palma's Bonfire of the Vanities, only 1% of the vote. Burton's Planet of the Apes only got 3%, and then came John Carter with 9% of the vote. Bunched together here is Angley's Hulk, 12%, Lynch's Dune, 13%, and then up more at the top, Wachowski's Speed Racer received 17% of the vote. Nope, they're all bad. Got second place, Adam, with 19% of the Hmm. vote. Some poll respondents just didn't want to lower themselves. And then, oh my goodness, the the Spielberg 90s kids came out en masse to vote in Hook, 25% of the vote and the win. Well, I think we're going to hear from at least one of those 90s kids. This is Lucy Morris Baird, who defends the choice, defends the win. Josh, I actually cried when I watched Hook again, she says, after Robin Williams died. Yes, it's overly hammy. Yes, the sets look like they are about to fall apart. And yes, some of the child actor parts are, well, hmm. However, the scene when Williams Peter starts believing is magical. He goes from being this stuck-up grown-up who takes everything seriously to embodying a childlike wonder. Childlike wonder and awe easily disappear into our everyday lives, our computers, our meetings, and our daily grind. William seems to be having a blast, and it sincerely shows those of us who need to remember the magic of being a child. For that scene alone, I am a great defender of Hook and William's legacy of being one of the greats. Shoot that down, Josh. Mm, Lucy, I don't want to ruin your your wonderful experience, but I will say it's probably not a good sign if the lead actor has to die in the movie for you to get emotionally involved. You know, it should probably, mm. probably offer some of that on its own. Maybe it did for Lucy. So I'm, I'm glad she has that and Hook. <laughs> All right, here's Eric Nelson. Great cast, great director, solid concept. But what sets Hook apart and makes it the only correct answer to this poll is the work of John Williams. His score for Hook is one of his best, ensuring that what the film lacks in story and pacing is made up for with a soaring and emotional score. Of course, Film Spotting Nation won't just accept some fanboy's opinion, so I brought evidence, and I'll even give my metric a Chicago flair. Spielberg and Williams have 28 collaborations. When Williams conducted the Chicago Symphony Orchestra a couple years ago, the Hook theme was one of only seven pieces Williams chose from that body of work alongside Jaws, E.T., and Indiana Jones. That's top quartile. Well, you can't argue with the data, Josh. You just can't. Well... Quartile. I don't. I don't even know what that means. So I'm. I'm just assuming that I'm wrong. It's. It's one of the planets in Dune. Ben Chambers <laughs> says. <laughs> 
I love Hook, but it has plenty of people willing to go to bat for it already. Ang Lee's Hulk, on the other hand, might have been hugely disappointing on first viewing, but is far more satisfying on rewatch, a truly underappreciated gem. Here's Jonathan Anderson in Denver. I was pretty passionate in my dislike of Ang Lee's Hulk on initial release, but upon a rewatch last year, I found a great deal of love for it. I love the MCU and what it's accomplished, but I wish any of those movies had even half the style that Hulk does. Hmm. Jeff Light says all of these have interesting parts that work, but none are genuinely good films except for Hook and Dune. I'm not a 90s kid, just one that understands the struggle of trying not to let the kid inside you die like Josh's apparently has. <laughs> yes, I'm, but even I'm though, shriveled inside. It's true. Even though Hook has that going for it, Dune has so much more. A Dune Defender. The novel is probably impossible to fully adapt to the screen, but Lynch gave us a compelling version that may not have satisfied his unique sensibilities, but he sure tells a deep and fantastic story. There's so much Old Testament majesty. Hmm, I went Shakespeare. I went... Greek tragedy didn't hit on Old Testament majesty mixed with Arthur Clarke's futurism that I don't know how anyone couldn't be bowled over by it. I'm jealous that you guys get to watch this masterpiece for the first time. Man, we let Jeff down. Holy cow. How about this from Elizabeth? Dune rules. It's a disaster, but it rules. (laughs) You know what? Sometimes just making it succinct. It's the best route. Lauren in New York City closes us out. I am no hipster. How dare you? I'm applying for Medicare, for cripes sakes. Speed (laughs) Racer may have been called Technicolor Vomit by the formerly interesting Rex Reed. He was ever interesting. (laughs) At some point, apparently. Wow. But it is the most visually original animated film of the last 20 years, with the possible exception of Into the Spider-Verse. The performances by John Goodman and Susan Sarandon are genuinely moving, and the score is right up there with The Incredibles as one of Michael Giacchino's best. Just watch it. I'm sorry. John Goodman and Susan Sarandon are in Speed Racer? <laughs> I had the exact same thought. I mean, th- there's a monkey. One version of Speed Racer. Is, there's a monkey, right? Does Does Goodman voice the monkey? <laughs> I... I am I am just dumbstruck right now. I'm I'm gonna just take Lauren in New York City nah. at at his word, I'm thinking L-O-R-E-N could be wrong. Thanks to Lauren and Elizabeth and everyone who wrote in, even if you do love Hook misguidedly. We appreciate everyone who voted and left a comment. If you'd like to vote in that current 80s directing debuts poll and then have us read your feedback and mock you on air, go ahead and do that. Filmspotting.net. Lauren's just a hipster. It's a nice, quiet place, something like this. Sheriff, let me stop you in the hallway here for just a second. There's a few things that we got to get straight right off the bat. I've learned about this the hard way. It's best to talk about it up front. When the bureau gets called in, the bureau's in charge. Now, you're going to be working for me. Sometimes local law enforcement has a problem with that. I hope you understand. Well, like I said, we're glad to have you here. Sheriff, what kind of fantastic trees have you got growing around here? Big, majestic. Douglas firs. Douglas firs. Well, if you've ever wondered why people love Twin Peaks so much, maybe look no further than a scene like that one with Kyle MacLachlan's special agent Dale Cooper and Michael Ontkeen's sheriff, wait for it, Harry S. Truman. The pilot episode of Twin Peaks debuted on ABC 30 years ago this year, 9 p.m. Eastern Time on Sunday, April 8th, 1990. That's six years after Dune and four years after Lynch's return to critical acclaim with 1986's Blue Velvet. 34.6 million people watched that pilot, Josh. And for proof that we live in a very different time now, that's more than double 
the average number of people watching the highest rated program on TV these days, which is Sunday night football. That's craziness. Yeah. In April 1990, we've already established you were watching Murder, She Wrote, apparently, with your mom. And I (laughs) missed it, too. Adam, Angela Lansbury's Jessica could do no wrong. She's a queen. No, she's a queen. Absolutely. Well, Twin Peaks is set in the fictional town of Twin Peaks, population 51,201. It's just south of the Canadian border. And the pilot episode starts with the discovery of the body of teenager Laura Palmer. McLaughlin's special agent Dale Cooper is brought in to help solve the case. And along the way, we get to know Laura's friends at the high school, Laura's family, and some of the stranger characters of the town. Adam, Andy Mitchell, former PA here on the show, sent in a question that I think is a really good one and probably a good place to start, especially in relation to Dune. You referenced this earlier when we were talking about Dune. Andy asked, is Dune the worst place for someone to start with the filmography of David Lynch? He also wonders, is Twin Peaks the best intro for someone who has never seen David Lynch? What do you think? Hmm. I think he's right. I think it probably is. Now, Blue Velvet was my entree under the world of David Lynch. And then I saw Twin Peaks probably next. And I loved Blue Velvet from the first moment I saw it. I've mentioned it before. One of my transformative cinephile movies really what turned me into someone who appreciated art house cinema. It felt that way to me at the time anyway. And I think if you were trying to turn someone on to Lynch, Give them all that quirkiness and just that true kind of Lynchian sensibility. And I think we will get into that a little bit more and maybe define it as we talk about this episode, but still wrapped in kind of a mainstream package where you can watch it as TV and get caught up in the murder mystery aspect of it, the whodunit aspect. I think there's probably a lot there to latch on to if you are dipping your toe in. If you're just trying to dip your toe into the Lynch waters, I think Andy's right. I think Twin Peaks is probably the best. Now, you're coming to this, Josh, as someone who has seen all of Lynch's films except for Twin Peaks. You haven't seen the movie Firewalk with me. And if we are setting aside the technicality of Twin Peaks technically being TV and talking about it as an entree onto his film work, I am, of course, really eager to hear your answer to Andy's question and really just dying to know If you appreciated Twin Peaks even half as much as I do, maybe you're not going to go down that path of now watching more David Lynch films because you've already seen them. But are you interested in going down the path of seeing more Twin Peaks? Yeah, so I agree. Andy's Andy's right. And it's that conventional aspect that makes it such an easy entry point because Lynch can be you know, initially off-putting in a number of ways. He doesn't follow narratives. A lot of the material is, is strangely graphic in a way that's unsettling differently than maybe like an exploitation film that has the Mm -hmm. same content, you know? So, so it takes a little bit to adjust to him and this is the perfect way to do that. Maybe the best example is I was, I was asking Debbie the same question as we were watching it. You know, did you watch this in 1990? And she says, no, I remember my mom being really hooked on it and, you know, would eventually say it was like after 9 p.m. slot, you know, back when they had those more adult shows were on after nine on network television. And she would be like, okay, you might to Debbie, you might need to leave the room after a certain point. So it had Hmm. that balance, you know, It, it had that Lynch unsettling element at the same time that it had the conventional whodunit that would pull us along, pull someone into it who's maybe watching like a a police show the hour before or something like that. I I don't, I'd have to ask her, I don't think Debbie's mom probably has seen 
a lot of other Lynch films, but she right. sure enough watched Twin Peaks. So there's your example. Huh. I think it's great. I mean, I'm absolutely hooked. Debbie is too. She she wants to keep watching them. And I said, well, let's let's wait and see. You know, we've talked about maybe in the next year doing something with the show in terms of watching the whole series again. And and so then we'd probably hold off. But yeah, we're both hooked. I think I think it has um, you know, I I'm my second go around with Lynch is resulting in greater appreciation, and um, I'm still teasing out why that is. But I think part of it is here is just his kind of his exploration of evil, really, and, and mm-hmm. how how we experience evil, where evil resides, how you define evil, what what is, yep. what isn't, and this, I mean. Like a, a whodunit like this set around the murder of a teenager, the unexplained murder of a teenager is just like the perfect locale to ask some of those questions because mm-hmm. it is it is shocking, it is disturbing, but it's also pulp material we're familiar with. And Lynch finds a way to make this seductive. I think that's the key for me. And that's maybe why Twin Peaks does work so well as a series, because it's that serial aspect of keep pulling us along, keep teasing us. Not just not just because my sense already from the pilot episode, we want to know the next clue, because I'm already less interested in finding out who killed Laura Palmer than I am in figuring out what's going on in this town mm-hmm. in general. What is... Yeah. What is happening to these people and how different really is it than what's happening to people in towns all across America? Hmm. Hmm. It's funny you mentioned that. And first of all, I love that you've only seen the pilot episode. And obviously you're basing this off of what you know about Lynch and his other films. But I love that you're tapping into this aspect of evil already without knowing really at all where this is going, because it just is so fundamental to this series and, as we said, to his work. Now, I did want to acknowledge here one bit of trivia that Sam mentioned to me earlier today in our Slack, and it's so funny that he did, because watching Twin Peaks again and seeing that sign come up in the opening credits, and I'll take a quick sidebar here. A while back when quarantine started and we were talking about the things that we were watching during this time, what we were streaming during quarantine, I mentioned revisiting Cheers on Netflix and it being one of those theme songs that I will never skip the intro song yeah, for. Yeah. And I know I know we're going to talk about the music here, but I will never skip the intro for Twin Peaks. I don't care how many times totally. I've seen these episodes. I will watch it every time. And when that sign comes up and you see Twin Peaks population 51,201. I definitely had the sense watching it that that didn't make any logical sense whatsoever. I'm like, this seems more like a town of 5,120. And Sam said, I don't know what number they added, but Sam said that he saw a note somewhere that the producers of the show, the network or whatever, felt like people wouldn't care about the goings on in too small of a town. So they did add a number to the population (laughs) to make it seem bigger, even though now that doesn't match at all what we see in terms of the layout or the people and their relationships. But I know I've touched on this before. Twin Peaks was, before this became a thing, my first binge watch. It was the summer before my freshman year of college. My best friend, Matt, who turned me on to Lynch, got that VHS box set of Twin Peaks. And when I would get home from my summer job and anything else I had going on, I would just put on Twin Peaks episodes. And I think I got through those first 15 episodes. It's it's kind of an odd structure, right? Where it's it's two seasons, but it's 30 episodes 
but the first eight are what comprise season one. And then you figure out who the killer is kind of halfway through the 30 episodes around episode 15. I did kind of take a break after I got there and then jumped back in later in the summer. And I, I did go a little bit slower after you, you get some of that key information and maybe Lynch becomes less of an artistic touchstone, less intimately involved with it. The, the scope and the, the tone of things do change in a way that maybe aren't quite as satisfying for us, David Lynch fans, but I watched those first 15 episodes, Josh, in maybe three days, you know, three to five episodes a day. I just couldn't stop watching. And then I proselytized from there. Everybody I met when I went to college, we had Twin Peaks night every week. We would watch episodes from the show and watching it again for the first time here in 20 plus years. Honestly, it was still a treat. And I had two kind of mini revelations. And I'll say they're mini revelations because there's no way that you appreciate Twin Peaks without appreciating both the performance of Kyle MacLachlan and the music of Angelo Badalamente. I don't think you can even say that you're a fan of David Lynch overall without appreciating Angelo Badalamente. It was always a key part of my love for this series. And yet watching it this time, I was I was surprised. Let me say that I was a little bit surprised at just how invigorating and powerful I found the music, just how essential I thought the score was to the success of Twin Peaks. Did you have a similar reaction? Oh man, yeah, you're you're touching on the two things I wanted to make sure that we talked about. So let's start with the Battle of Menti's soundtrack. Um, it is just, to me, it was so off kilter. And this whole, everything going on in this show is off kilter because it has the familiarity, that conventionality, but then it's Lynch, right? And that's exactly what the music does because much mm -hmm. of it, my impression, Adam, was almost like a, you know, we're talking like 90s, right? A movie of the week sort of inspirational theme to it. I think Laura Palmer's theme especially has that. But then at the same time, all of the pieces and the Twin Peaks theme particularly has this insinuating baseline, right? That is, I'm going to use that word again, it's seductive, but it is, it's yeah. also kind of like burrowing away at the inspirational elements and, and kind of, and this is what, this is kind of what Lynch's stuff does, right? Is like forcing you to ask, like, is this really like Americana, like a feel good Americana or is something else going on here? And I, I'm not, I've mentioned before, like someone who listens to soundtracks while I'm working or I don't often do that. It takes certain soundtracks that'll really make an effort, but I had this score going on all day today just to kind mm -hmm. of reimmerse myself in it because it does what you're saying. It puts you so directly in that world. So it's definitely the, the score, but also I want to mention too, Julie Cruz, uh, yeah. the singer who appears here singing, I think she sings The Nightingale and Falling. Music by Battlementi, the lyrics by Lynch, she also is spookily seductive, right? That mm -hmm. voice that is such a perfect match for what's going on here. And I knew that I knew the voice when we were watching it. And sure enough, just looking up, I, I realized, sure, she she covered Elvis Presley's Summer Kisses, Winter Tears. That was on the soundtrack for Vim Vendors Until the End of the World, which came out in 1991. So, so yeah, I wasn't watching Twin Peaks then, Adam, but I did go to hmm. the theater to see Until the End of the World. And that's a soundtrack wow. I, I did buy because of the Julie Cruz number. And there's another great 
songs on no that kidding. soundtrack too. Yeah, but but she's wow. you know she's crucial I think to this. But it's Battle of Menti is I, I can't imagine yeah. this working a quarter as well as it does without that no, music. No, I felt the same way. And it's funny that you mentioned that kind of movie of the week feel. I mean, I wrote down in my notes, it is at its core a soap opera, right? And I yes, agree. Yes. Laura's theme even feels a little bit at times like the music from Days of Our Lives or The Young and the Restless. And everyone totally. here has a secret. Everyone is having affairs. Everyone is living some kind of double life. And I think that the magic of Lynch is in his ability to partly elevate those conventions and that structure and approach at times even deconstruct it maybe but he also so clearly sincerely appreciates the form and i think that's what really does come through that kind of dichotomy and that contradiction even and it's all there in the music as well the the tracks themselves i think do express the layers of the characters and of the show overall so i'll go back to laura's theme early on Approaching the body, Doc Hayward, Sheriff Truman, we get those really dark, slow, ominous chords just holding. And then we discover that it's Laura who has been killed. And we get that almost lovely, romantic lift. And yet, rather than it being discordant in some way, it's actually kind of heartbreaking. There's there's an ache in the beauty of that moment, just as they see who it is. There's this suggestion, I think, of an innocence compromised, of something destroyed there. And that, that music plays across the cut to Laura's mom, who's trying to get her downstairs to come from school. And that perfect transition, Josh, I watched it like three times today, where we just quickly, musically, then go back to the beginning, those foreboding, ominous chords holding, and it switches right as Sarah Palmer comes into close-up, peeking around the kitchen to the staircase, mm. where we finally really see her face in full, and that that staircase imagery is going to come oh, back wow. into play again. And it, right? I, can, I mean, it's I can already tell that, and it's yeah. it's ter- it's terrifying, even though I don't know what's <laughs> going to come. It is, and it's a combination of obviously the way it's shot, yeah. it's the moment itself, what it's filled with, and the music there mm-hmm. and what we read in Sarah Palmer, the worry so clearly on her face, the recognition, I think in that moment, just when she rounds the corner, the music cues us to the recognition that something is profoundly, profoundly wrong. And then we we get something like the track, if you look at the soundtrack, that's called Freshly Squeezed, which is, it's jazzy and it's it's snappy and there is snappy. Yeah, that's the other it, right? element. Mm-hmm. And then and then there's that, you know, you touched on this, the descending walking baseline. It's playful and it's light, but use the word seductive. I definitely say it's sensual and it is like this show overall, like Lynch. It's mysterious. So even when when the music is kind of just teasing that out of you, it's just adding that additional element, I guess I'd say even of wonder, which is also a term I would use to describe how Dale Cooper approaches most events that happen around him. Yeah, and that that's where we should go next because those jazzy elements often are accompanying Cooper, right? As he's on the case. It's it's kind of um bringing that whole feel to yeah. those moments and and Audrey too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but it but yeah. it's off. It's off kilter as well. It is. And 
man, is especially watching this after what I said about McLaughlin in Dune, and I know it's, you know, years later, but what a delight he is here. He's just, he's he's goofy, but you also know that Cooper is competent, right? He knows what he's doing. He's good at his job. He notices things, but he's so light lighthearted about it, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, and the way he can like change an expression on a dime and keeps everyone off. You, I don't know yet if that's like a Columbo style tactic of his, or it's just kind of who he is. And, and you would think that this would not be the right approach for a grim story like this. Right. But if you think about all the performances, just about every performance here, and you mentioned Sarah Palmer, Laura's mother, played by Grace Zabriskie, like mm-hmm. the the outsized anguish she expresses when yes. she finds out what happened yes. to Laura is like so heightened. And Cooper is is like so goofy. And other people, it, it's weird. It's almost like there are times where they're muted too, and you expect them to be more outspoken mm-hmm. about what everything is like either too loud or too soft. Everything is either sometimes the emotions come before they should in the yeah. scene. Mm-hmm. And it happens with so many performances that you know it's on purpose. It's not just like Lynch and we should also say, right, Mark Frost, Mark the, Frost. the co-creator here. It's not as if Lynch and Frost are just casting quote unquote big actors. Like this is on purpose that all of these performances are are off just a bit. And I think it's again to keep us disoriented, but also goes back to that idea of evil where it's it's not just that these are bad people or that bad things have been done. It's like there's, there's something seeping into this town Mm -hmm. that is, is affecting how they even respond emotionally. And so these bizarre performances, even as, as much as you're like, Whoa, what, what is going on here? They make perfect sense, at least to me with what the series seems to be interested in doing. Yeah. Well, you can't have darkness without the light. You can't understand one without the other. I think that's so essential to Lynch. And we even get it in the fact that we learn everything we do about who Laura Palmer is. Again, she's dead at the very beginning of the episode, and we only see her in some home video footage at this point in the series. We really don't know who she is, and yet we know we think everything about her, or we at least start to get a picture of who she is based off what we come to learn about the crime and the mystery surrounding it, but the impact she had on everyone in the town. And so there's that that lightness, that innocence, again, the the opposite of all the the true darkness that we're seeing in the way people react to her death, even like Audrey's brother, right? The the kid who's distraught because Laura's not going to come and read to him that day. So mm. you're learning all these things about Laura as if she's she's really a troubled And yet we also get the exact opposite. We learn how loving she can be and how compassionate she can be. And I think that ties back to what you were saying about what really makes this Lynchian. I think what you were touching on, Josh, in terms of the performances and some of the the dialogue, even in the tone, there's just an unpredictability to it. Mm -hmm. You, You think with material like this, you know what a response in a certain moment should be. That the only and surprise is the mystery, which which is, which is not. reversed here. No, that's it. It, it. It's every moment, it's every reaction, it's every, it's every line and everything that's expressed just hits you in a way that I don't think any of us fully expect. And I think it 
it's teased out in ways like we know before everyone else does, as I said, that Laura's dead. So then when you see Sarah and Leland's response to it, right, and even Donna and James, we know it before they do. And they know it then before the rest of their classmates do, before the principal has finally announced it. It just lingers. The dread there lingers. And we even get the aftermath with the principal's response when he breaks down. Lynch really makes us sit in that dread Mm -hmm. for a long time in a way that's that's uncomfortable, but I also think is really appropriate for the subject matter. And then you take that and you get Lynch doing plenty of goofy Lynch things, too, like the the bell ringing and kids going to class and a kid just break dances kind of across the, the frame for a second or even Bobby and Mike barking like vicious dogs Mm. at James when they're in the jail cell. It's totally silly. You can find yourself laughing at it. And then there's something inherently terrifying and primal about it as well. So you're going to get all of those layers. You're going to get, in addition to that, longing in these characters and earnestness too. And that's, that's all culminated, I think, in McLaughlin's agent, Dale Cooper, where you said it. There's, there's a professionalism to him. There's a no-nonsense aspect to him. He seems to carry the weight of his job, of this crime, what he thinks he knows about it, where it might be going that everyone else in the town maybe doesn't fully understand. But then he's also genuinely kind of in awe of this place. Sure. And in a childlike way, appreciates all these basic things like the coffee and furs. pie and the big trees and their <laughs> smell. And, and even Josh, I mean, who who can begrudge a clean room with a reasonable rate? You know, so so we get these touches. And I, I just want to really emphasize how much I love McLaughlin here when mm-hmm. Sheriff Truman calls for backup and Cooper gives him a thumbs up. <laughs> that yeah. goofy thumbs up or or even when they're in that room speaking of paris texas a little bit i was having flashbacks to the the twitchy fluorescent light when they're looking oh, at the that body scene yeah wow that scene right and then his eyes as he he turns to sheriff truman and says we've got a lot to talk about it, it's it's encompassing all those things we just said it's this sense of you aren't even going to be able to believe or start to understand everything I could fill you in on. And yet, almost like a kid, he's saying, I can't wait to tell you, right? And the interrogation of Bobby is one of my favorite scenes in the pilot where Dana Ashbrook, who I think is really good as Bobby, gets gets angry and he lashes out. And McLaughlin just turns slowly to Michael Onkin and smiles. Uh-huh. And then the whole time smiling, he says, Bobby, here's how this works. We ask the questions and you answer the questions that we ask briefly and to the point. I, it's it's delightful. He's he's not good cop, he's not bad cop. He's just like he's Mr. In-between cop. Like it's that's just it. going to roll roll off him and he's just going to do his job. Yeah. <laughs> he's that's great. It. So how bizarre to think about. You know, we mentioned that what was it? 34 million people watching the pilot. And I'm trying to remember now. So so this comes out that many people watch it. If you missed it, are you out of luck? <laughs> I mean, are you, or, or did you must they, have been. did, uh, this was ABC, right? I think it was ABC. Did they like, yeah. did they replay it later? Like, you know, in the week to catch more people once it became a sensation. I wish I could remember that element of it because as you said, they're setting it up, Adam, the landscape is just so completely different. It is got to be hard for younger listeners, you know, who have gotten into television and movies in the era of streaming to even fathom what it would be like, not just to have it doled out that much, but to have a sensation like this. And it was a huge sensation um, to just, to just drop. And then it was there and it's gone. 
Mm-hmm. So it, it just, it's gone. It's, it, I mean, it's kind of perfect for Lynch, right? That that's it is. how this was released. A little initially. ephemeral. Yeah. yeah. No, it's a really good point because as I said, I don't remember what I was doing at the time. Definitely wasn't watching Murder, She Wrote, Josh. Sorry, no offense. But <laughs> I, I remember seeing it. You know, you would go to the grocery store. You were a kid and you'd see the TV guide with Laura Palmer on the cover. And yeah. you knew that this was a sensation. But to your point, you also knew if you were hearing about it and you were a little bit intrigued, you were like, oh, but but the horse is out of the barn there. Yeah. I, I've, I've missed it. I can't now pick up Twin Peaks and watch this. And you're right. There's still some series we all watch these days where... They do unfold now week to week. And I know we're so used to streaming and binging that that is something that makes most of us angry when we have to do that, right? Because <laughs> yeah. we're used to be able to just go, I want to see the next episode right now and I'm going to watch it. But waiting each week to watch Twin Peaks, that's not the experience, as I said, I had. And I appreciated that I got to just enjoy it all and consume it all as fast as I could. But I also think there would have been some magic in being able to to look forward to that every week. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Something like X-Files maybe is is a similar experience I had where it was like, mm-hmm. couldn't wait to see what was going to unfold next because mystery was built in there as it is here. The pilot episode of Twin Peaks and seasons one and two are currently available on Netflix. If you haven't taken the plunge with Lynch and Twin Peaks until now, like Josh, you've got his recommendation as well as mine and truly maybe predictably here, unfortunately, we had a feeling we might be trashing Lynch's Dune, but hopefully appreciating Twin Peaks. And I'm glad that played out. All right, Adam, that is the show. If listeners want to let us know about their experience with Twin Peaks, maybe when it first came out, you can let us know on Facebook and Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives over at filmspotting.net, we've got reviews, interviews, and top fives that go all the way back to 2005. And that is also where you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're asking who made the best 1980s directing debut. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop, and you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out on digital this weekend, I Am Greta, a documentary about 15-year-old environmental activist Greta Thunberg. It's on Hulu. Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey is out. IndieWire's Kate Erbland calls it a joyous holiday musical about the power of invention with Forrest Whitaker, Felicia Rashad, and Keegan-Michael Key. In limited release, Ammonite, this play, the Chicago Film Festival set in the 1840s in coastal England. It stars Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan as a pair of women from different backgrounds who have a love affair. God's own country director, Francis Lee, directs that The Climb is out. Nick Allen at RogerEver.com says it's a wake-up call for the visual potential of heartfelt comedy. It's the feature directing debut from Michael Angelo Covino. Come Away, the solo directing debut of Brenda Chapman, who co-directed Pixar's Brave. And Freaky, a body swap horror comedy from director Christopher Landon, who did Happy Death Day. It stars Vince Vaughn. Wolfwalkers, one of the movies you asked a question about during our fall movie preview last week. Yes. That is out in limited release, and then it's coming to Apple TV Plus on December 11th. Finally... I'm going to let you do the honors, Josh. Hitting theaters, select cities, coming to Netflix, December 4th, the latest from David Fincher. It is Mank! Next week here on Film Spotting, we're definitely going to talk about the final film in our 8 from 84 series, Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise. And we're thinking 
that we're going to at least wrap it up with our 8 from 84 awards. We'll give you our best picture. We'll rank all the films in the series, our favorite performances, iconic scenes, and more. And then we do have that top five Josh 80s directors to be thinking about and maybe even unveiling on next week's show. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.